morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is July 7th, 2021, and we will be discussing an article in Harvard Business Review entitled, The Data Economy is a Barter Economy by Jillian Tett. How are you this morning? I'm doing, I'm doing quite well. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about more data, uh, the data economy and social media and how data is handled. I think it's going to be very interesting. So let's talk, David. Okay. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay, yes. And our Monday episode was about the social dilemma, which sort of plays into this as well. Sort of saying, if you're not paying for it, you're the product, not the customer. Um, Jillian Tett takes a different view, and we like to do a meta-analysis on this show. And so I did just a brief look into Jillian Tett's background, and she is the editor of the USA side of the Financial Times. So she has business bona fides, but her education is, I believe she has a PhD in anthropology. Let me just pull that up real quick. In cultural, in cultural anthropology from Cambridge University. So I think that there's no coincidence that one of her proposed solutions to a, um, a business problem might be anthropological. That's right. And I, I, we love that type of approach because... You should look at things in different in different directions, in different uh, dimensions, and different views, different perspectives. Yes, and uh, and Jillian certainly does, and which I really I really like. We often so say, let's talk let's let's talk about what she said. It, I mean, we really often great. say where you stand depends on where you sit. Right now, she's sitting at the head of the Financial Times or the editorial board, the chair of the editorial board. Um, so you'd think that her proposal would be financial, and yet it's not. It sort of sits with her training, which is uh, anthropological. And that leads me to where you stand depends on where you sit. I think it's true a lot of the times. But, and this is no dig on Jillian Tett, but there's another phrase I like, to uh, hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so I think that if you've been trained to assert, look at problems certain ways, when you're presented with a unique and complicated problem, you'll fall back on your training. You'll fall back on... Uh, you know, if you're an anthropo anthropologist at heart or if you're a, a carpenter at heart, you, you think you can use woodworking to get your way out of a solution, you know, and, and that you may not necessarily be wrong, but I think that people revert to what they know. Uh, it's true. And I think that's good. I mm -hmm. think there's nothing wrong with that. I think different viewpoints and different, different perspectives and different approaches are valuable as long as you listen uh, as much as you talk. And under, try to understand what the other person is saying. Yes. Uh, but hopefully people try to understand what you're saying. And so let's see if we can understand what Jillian is saying about uh, about bartering uh, and uh, a cultural anthropological approach, which I think is a great it's a great perspective. Yes. So I'll just read the abstract um, just to start. Oh, okay. And then we can have a short discussion and then we'll get into the article. It's not very long. So today's episode will be less than an hour. I believe. You never know. Once we get going, sometimes we can uh, <laughs> we can really ramp up. So here's the summary or the abstract. What is the best way for businesses to use data in a way that feels ethical to consumers and does not spark a regulatory backlash? This question is sparking endless angst or angst in today's C-suites. All manner of policy responses have been suggested. But one simple and important place to start is to change the way we talk about it. Borrowing an idea from cultural anthropology and describing this exchange as barter will clarify the minds of regulators and investors to focus on the scale and nature of long-concealed exchanges that now lie at the heart of the tech world and how to create a more acceptable framework that protects consumers. Okay, <laughs> there we go. That's the summary. Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, to talk about the summary, I, I just want to mention, David, it says uh, she's she's very positive, borrowing an idea from cultural anthropology and describing this as change as barter will clarify the minds of regulators. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's true. No. <laughs> I'm but that's that's hopeful. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, let's hope that regulators can have their minds cleared. Uh, you know, they're not sitting where other people have sat. Yes. And uh, like you say, 
they're going to think uh, from a direction for they're going to stand depending on where they sit. Yeah, it, it, like from your perspective, it may take <laughs> a miraculous act of God to clarify the minds of regulators. <laughs> Depending on where you sit, that's right. Depending on where you are, mm-hmm. all right, great. So it's not just going to be a different idea or term. It's going to be an act of God. Yeah. But her, what she has to say is very valuable and very useful. Yes, and I think there's a lesson in here as well with this describing these exchanges as barter will clarify the minds of regulators. Is when you propose a solution. Uh, frame it as a solution. Don't frame it as this might work. Frame it as what I'm suggesting will lead to this consequence, whether or not you can sort of uh, enumerate the mechanisms by which it will do that. You know? Yeah. If you think well, something's a again, good idea, I think you should advocate for it because there's a lot of people out there with a lot of bad ideas. And one thing that It's a a tool of psychology is you never appeal to an ideal. You always appeal to the self-interest of the people you're talking to. So right now, if you look at the world, regulators' minds are not clear. And they have no idea what to do with this situation. So she's proposing a shift in viewpoint and framework. And she's saying, what will this do? It will solve that problem. It will solve a problem that we have in society. Not saying this might work or this is a more reasonable way to frame this issue it's like no this will work so listen to me and i think that's important for someone to step up and say i think this is a great idea and i think if we do it it'll work well i think another perspective of of just just the introduction the summary is we'll clarify the minds of regulators and investors to focus on the scale and nature of long concealed exchanges that now lie at the heart of the tech world well there's two types of clarity here one her argument might be very clear, and it may be very well taken intellectually, but that doesn't mean that their minds are going to be cleared and uh, psychologically buy into it. Yes. Because uh, there may be other other issues, uh, not just the logic uh, of uh, a term, the term bartering from uh, from clinical, from uh, uh, anthropology. Yes. Well, um it's like often, like her argument may be clear, but that doesn't mean their minds will be clear. It's like when, yeah, right. <laughs> It's like whenever you have to deal with Verizon, and they <laughs> and they tell you, oh, we don't do things the way that you're used to. We've changed them. So you've changed them. How do you do them now? So go, we do them this way. It's so much easier. And you take one look at it, and you always tell the people at the Verizon store, easier for you. <laughs> It's not easier for me, like. Right. But the, I mean, the salespeople are jazzed on it because it is easier for them. Um, uh-huh. So I mean, so they're technically not wrong. <laughs> it is easier, but you're pointing out to them, it's easier for you, not me. Uh, I I also point out, how many clicks did it take for you to do that? Mm-hmm. And every click, about 10, 15, 20 clicks. Says, well, look, bud. To each one of those clicks had a meaning, mm-hmm. and if you don't know what those meanings are, it takes twenty different discoveries to do that. To me, that's not a definition of easy. Yeah. Anyway, that's well, a different subject. But it could have taken forty clicks before you before you refine the process. So it's easier. That's true. That's true. All right. Before anyway. we start. <laughs> we haven't even started the article yet, dude. No, but we started the summary, so we're sort of into it. And we're only 10 <laughs> minutes in. Um, I am going to hang up and call you back real quick, if that's okay, just because I want you to appear on the screen alongside the article while we read it, and I didn't set that up before the broadcast started. So just bear with okay. us. Technically, uh, nothing is wrong here. Let me just switch to myself so that nobody can see the uh, man behind the curtain. Okay. And I'll do a quick reconnect. And you're back. Yay, did that work? I think so. I don't see your face, though, yet. No, I didn't I didn't open the camera. There we go. There we go. This is what I wanted to see, and it was... Yeah, you, you we're there. online. 
Um, well done, David. <laughs> yes, we, we figured it out. Um, are we ready to get into the article now that we're 10 I minutes think, in? I think we are. Okay. Um, should I read? Do you want to read? Whatever you want to do. Um, I'll read the I'll read the intro. Uh, the data economy is a barter economy by Jillian Tett. The use of consumer data today is expanding exponentially, as is public and political criticism of these practices. Just think of the political scandals that exploded a couple of years ago around Cambridge Analytica, or regulators around the world examining whether social media platforms such as Facebook have abused their monopoly powers. The new bipartisan bills calling for tighter tech regulation that are now circulating in the U.S. Congress and the appointment of Lena Khan to head the Federal Trade Commission will only inflame this debate. So, what is the best way for businesses to use data in a way that feels ethical to consumers and does not spark a regulatory backlash? This question is sparking endless angst in today's C-suites. All manner of policy responses have been suggested, breaking up tech giants, redefining monopoly controls, introducing new privacy laws, and letting consumers, quote, own, end quote, their data, to name a few. One simple and important place to start is to change the way we talk about it. Policymakers, economists, techies, lawyers, business leaders, and consumers should borrow an idea from cultural anthropology and consider the concept of barter. Doing this will clarify the minds of regulators and investors to focus on the scale and nature of long-concealed exchanges that now lie at the heart of the tech world and how to create a more acceptable framework that protects consumers. At first, this may sound odd. After all, anthropology is one of the least known social sciences. It's probably most famously associated with Indiana Jones. I would say, okay, just on a brief aside, I would say Indiana Jones is more associated with archaeology than anthropology, but that's just, that's just my opinion. However, let's continue. And the word barter conjures up images of swapping meat for berries, an image that seems far removed from the modern C-suite, let alone Silicon Valley. Economists tend to assume that barter is a prehistoric practice that disappears whenever societies invent money. That, at least, was the scornful view of Adam Smith, the 18th century intellectual. It has shaped economic thinking today. Most Western executives have absorbed a cultural assumption that because money makes the world go round, to cite the cliché, the most important things in an economy are measured in monetary units and or organized with money. Transactions that happen without money, i.e. those which are free, are thus downplayed or ignored. Anthropologists, however, have a much broader vision of how the economy works. They look at how exchanges bind societies together in a broad sense and know that money-based exchanges are only one of the flows that binds us together. Systems of social credit, gifts, and barter matter too. If they are rarely discussed in public and cannot be easily factored into an economic model, Looking at what is hiding in plain sight, i.e. non-monetary flows, can help frame the modern digital economy. After all, what drives the business strategy of companies such as Facebook, Google, and numerous others is partly an exchange that does not entail money. Consumer data is being collected in exchange for the provision of services, just as berries might be swapped for meat. I would argue that barter is the best word to describe this exchange. And if this phrase was inserted into the language of the C-suite, and policy making today, with a broader anthropological perspective, this could deliver several benefits. Most notably, and then we get into most notably. Yeah, some how, points, points. How do you feel points. about the introduction? That's a good introduction. I think I think uh, she does make a good argument. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also, I just want to, to me, when I read this, when I hear this, uh, anthropology is not my background. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know that she, was she, from her perspectives, and she sees a lot more than I see. Uh, so therefore, from an outsider looking at this, I'm thinking, well, that sounds good, but I'm not really sure where she's going with it. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not really sure how that would happen because I really don't understand anthropology that much. But but it does. It is hopeful. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like like that hopefulness and positive. It says 
yeah, let's listen to this and let's see uh, if it does. Let's see how it would. Uh, and let's have other people uh, uh, chime in and talk about it. Yeah. Well, I when I read this, you know, this intro especially, she's talking about Adam Smith, the 18th century intellectual, uh, says that, you know, once societies invent money, bartering becomes uh, irrelevant or whatever. Money makes the world go round. But I've always thought about people's relationship to money as a barter as well. I mean, most people are wage earners. And what you're doing is you're bartering your time, which is perhaps your most precious resource because you only have a finite amount of time. You could make a billion dollars like Jeff Bezos. That's a lot of money. Or you could make 50000 So you're trading eight hours of your day. Let's say you make $20 an hour for $160. Um, but that's eight hours of your life you're never going to get back. You're bartering with your time. Let's say you sort of uh, invest in a home. Uh, you're taking on an obligation to pay back a loan with interest, and you're trading sort of your ability to move around. You're sort of stuck in one place, you know, stuck in a home for 15 or 30 years, however long the term of it. But at the end of it all, you get a home. So uh, there are, I, I think that a lot of times you think, oh, what's the amount on the note? And what is the interest payments per month? And what is my monthly payment? And that's what I get in terms of a home. But there's also also other obligations that you're bartering that come along with it. You don't really have the freedom to move as easily without having to sell your home. But you're also building equity on an asset. So there's, there's a trade-off there as opposed to just being a renter. And so I think that a lot of monetary transactions are bartered too. But she's talking about what's hiding in plain sight. Non-monetary flows. Every transaction has non-monetary flows. I remember... When I was in business school, there was a survey conducted of American firms and Japanese firms. And the Japanese firms and the American firms, they offer the employees a gym membership that was worth $600 a year. Or instead of the gym membership, they could get $1,000 cash. 90% of the American employees took the cash. 90% of the Japanese employees took the gym membership. Because it wasn't about the dollar value of the gym membership. It was about loyalty to the company and sort of taking advantage of a perk that the company's provided for you. You can get money in other places, but that building loyalty with your organization was more important in a Japanese cultural context and an American cultural context. I, I always found that, that story kind of fascinating. Well, there is non-monetary flows, which I think is very important, even with with making money. I mean, like you said, uh, people will give up high paying jobs and take a job that's much lower paying. They'll give up that money uh, for good working conditions, being around people that they enjoy being around, and also uh, doing work that they enjoy, mm -hmm. that they like to do. And they feel rewarding and they feel important. And so, yeah, there are some non-monetary aspects to uh, bartering of your time. And uh, but I think she's getting ready to talk about not necessarily our time, but also our data. Yes. Uh, and so our data is is bartered as well. The information about us, you think, who cares about me? I'm just one person. Uh, and uh, in one sense, that's true. You're just one person. But if you can get everyone, all of a sudden, uh, it becomes much more important uh, and it becomes very valuable and that becomes a commodity. It, be mm -hmm. it becomes something that's going to be valuable. And so there's where the rub is, is uh, how you're using this information. As it turns out, the way that information is used, uh, there's power. Yeah. There's power in information and in, in, uh from data and individuals. So it how does, they think and have. It does have value. It has monetary value. Well, it has it has the value that data of individuals have is I, I think the greatest value is the power it has. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of power. 
It has power in the financial area, it has power in the retail area, it has power in the political area, it has power in the social, it has power everywhere. Therefore, you can monetize it. Yes. <laughs> and it has been monetized. And so I think she she's going to bring in uh, a different perspective on how to regulate that uh, with the term barter. Um, however, uh, when we read her points here, I think one thing that I always keep kept in mind when I started when I started reading her points is that uh, how does how does a def what definition of barter? I'm sure there's more than one definition. What perspective of barter applies? to the different points she's getting ready to make. Yes. So that's something to keep in mind. Like, how does this, how does this play out? Also, like you said, the, the value of information, of data, of individuals' data, there's power beyond a monetary value. And the thing is, when you start to think about, well, how do we value the data? Well, the easiest way to value it is in terms of dollars. Um. I saw this is analysis from years ago because I'm sure it's they took the value of Facebook and they said, you know, their asset, their chief asset at Facebook. Yeah, they have a headquarters. They have server base is your data. And and what is your data worth? And it's like everything they know about you is worth about fourteen dollars. So your life is worth about fourteen dollars. But the thing is, they have billions of users. So um, now it's worth much more than fourteen dollars. $14 is what they can earn off of it. You know, then this is years ago, so I'm sure that it's more than $14 now. But do you see what I'm saying? And like, what what they can do, they might be able to earn $14, but what it's worth is more than $14. What it's worth to them is $14. So I, yeah. I and it's difficult, like her, her point of barter, it's difficult for people to imagine anything uh, of value without attaching a dollar sign to it. Well, which brings up another point before we even get to these other points <clears throat> is that the thinking, the mentality, the definitions, the approach, uh, just the mentality of thinking of the world today, uh, if they think of barter, uh, they think of something that's monetized. Mm -hmm. And so money, uh, monetization has defined barter in the modern world today. And so when you bring the definition of barter, they'll naturally go to, to monetization of services, of data, whatever, to define it, to understand it before they begin to use it. But I think from anthropology, there may be other types of definitions and approaches other than just monetization of services or monetization of data or monetizations of products. Mm -hmm. So there may be other other perspectives of barter. Again, uh, the general public, as she, I think she said at the very beginning, it's uh, least known. What would she say? The least known uh, uh, cultural anthropology. What did she say that? That it's not very well known. Remember that? Yes. At first, this might so, sound odd. After all, anthropology is one of the least known social sciences. Wow, you're good, David. You find that stuff fast. Yep, there it is. Of the least known social sciences. Well, that sentence right there, that's true. Therefore, the actual thinking from that vantage point, from that perspective, is not going to be pretty well understood. Mm -hmm. But uh, that that's not a reason not to think this way or to even consider it. Uh, the challenge is going to be how will you take the thought and translate it into action? And yes. she does have some points. And um, yeah, we'll get into these points. And I think that I might be sort of burying some of the things she said. But just going on to think about everything is a trade. And... And money, you know, people just use money as a measuring stick. And that's sort of how they measure someone's worth. And I'm always brought back to this clip. I should, I should pull it up and I should always have it at the ready of Elon Musk with his second wife. He's on his third wife now. And his second wife was a British model. And she's sitting there. She's young. 
and he had three boys with his first wife. And they're doing an interview at their house, and the boys are running around roughshod. They're out of control. They don't have a lot of guidance or discipline. It doesn't, doesn't seem that way from their attitude during the interview. And they ask his second wife, a young British model, what's it like sort of to suddenly be married to a 45-year-old man who's our, one of the richest entrepreneurs in the world? It's like, so it's all a little overwhelming at times. I, you know, wake up and, and all of a sudden, you know, my husband's gone and I have these three boys to take care of and I'm just so overwhelmed. And I call my parents and I say, I just want to go home. And Elon Musk is there and he furrows his brow and he looks at his wife and he says, really? And this guy may be the modern day Iron Man. He may be building an electronic car. He may be trying to go to Mars, but he doesn't even know that his wife is unhappy. He doesn't even know that she's overwhelmed. So it's like, is he really all that rich? <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I like that point, David. And I like that story. And uh, it's nothing negative about Elon Musk. He, that's just one example. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's bartering that's... sort of that knowledge, the knowledge of what's going on in his family life, the happiness of some of the people around him for the success in the, in the business world. I think a lot of times you trade those things. That's true. And that's true with a lot of people. And that a lot of people, they have where their interests lie is, where their money is going to be spent, and where their interests are going to be. Yeah, I I do like that story because it's, and it's not about him, it's about a lot of people are that way. Yeah, priorities. Right. And I think that the big ticket where you get the headlines is in the dollar field. Like you said, people can make $100,000 a year and be miserable. And if they switch jobs and they make $85,000 a year, they may have a less prestigious title. But if they're doing something they love, their life becomes so much better with less money. I think that happens to a lot of people. Happens to a lot of people. But it's difficult when money is the only measuring stick to say, I'm going to take less money, but it's okay. Because your whole life you're taught to think, no. Taking less money is settling for less. And it's like, that's just one of the things they've attached a dollar amount to. You don't have a happiness amount. Like your happiness will be 40 if you make 100 grand, but your happiness will be 80 if you make 85 grand. Like there's no scale like that. You just have to figure it out yourself. Yep. Um, Shall we continue to (laughs) read? Do you want to read the points? Okay. Should we just Uh, go one by one and stop? Yeah. Okay. So one by one, because it's short. And she just raises some good ideas, some very good points. So um, Remember, do you want to do the last par- paragraph, too? The, I would argue that barter is the best word to describe. Okay. Because it sort of sets up her... Leads in. Yeah. Okay. I would argue that barter is the best word to describe this exchange. And if this phrase was inserted into the language of the C-suite and policymaking today with a broader anthropological perspective, this could deliver several benefits. Most notably, number one, it would make everyone aware of both sides of the transaction. The idea that the modern tech economy depends on two-way, not one-way, flows is often lost in the public debate about data usage. Consumers are not just giving up data, which they sometimes hate. They're also getting services in return, which they almost always like. Since they don't want to lose the latter, They continue to deal with social media sites, even amid political outcry. Okay, I have a big point to make, and it's a negative negative point. Okay. We just watched The Social Dilemma, our episode on Monday is about it, and I don't think Uh we brought this up in the episode. But in The Social Dilemma, they said, if you're not paying for the services, you're not the customer, you're the product. And I always take a critical eye when someone talks about both sides. So there is a third side, and that's the actual customer. The actual customer is paying Facebook or Google for impressions, paying Facebook or Google for placing that ad in front of a person's face and allowing them to get attention. And that influences Facebook's and Google's behavior and YouTube's behavior algorithmically. It influences... The behavior of the consumer who's consuming the services, the user, not the consumer, um, 
uh, behaviorally. And it's sort of, that's what shapes the dynamic between a tech giant and a user is the actual customer. And so sort of leaving them out of how you frame the issue, I think sort of sells short the understanding of the issue. Well, maybe, I I understand what you're saying. Maybe another way to say it uh, is that this point that she's making is a good point. Uh, if, but you got to be really careful with this point to not fall into the pitfall of the danger of the fallacy of uh, bifurcation. Mm-hmm. That there's not just two sides, there's multiple sides. And it's saying, oh, you have the consumer, you have the services, and that's it. That's not it. There's a lot more out there. And so this could be a positive way to look at it from a barter standpoint, but also could be a fallacious way to look at it by just defining just two sides. Yes. And if one side wins, the other side loses in a zero-sum game, then maybe someone else is actually winning. Yes. And I, I mean, I don't want to bring and up... And you're both losing. Maybe. So there's another way to look at it. I, I don't want to bring up this point. I don't want to talk about this because it's sort of a, a talking point that's sort of nonsense. But I'm going to do it anyway. Now, let's say I go to Alabama. Uh, and I'm going to pick on Alabama because that's always one of the states that's easy to pick on. And I have 100 students and they want to join my school. And they're really clamoring for it and because I'm going to teach a curriculum that they really like. It's a charter school and, and you know, Republicans are all about charter schools. But I'm going to need a little bit of funding from the, the government. So I say, I have 100 students. They're ready to go to my school. I'm going to call it Critical Race Theory High School. Alabama state government, do you want to give me a couple hundred thousand dollars so I can start this school? That third party will not broker that solution, even though there's a person willing to provide the service and a person willing to accept the service. And I think in this framing, the third parties, the people that are advertising on these platforms, the actual customers, they have a lot of power over what happens. Just like the state has a lot of power over a brokered solution for a governmental service provision. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, actually, it's a very good point. Good perspective. I like it. Uh, but I wonder how many people would, uh, I wonder how, how many people that would be lost to, lost on. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure everyone would follow that line of logic. Like, well, that's true, but they don't like that because they don't want to think that they can fall into that trap. Yeah. And so sometimes people will say, oh, no, I don't think that's true. But it is. Mm-hmm. It is very true. So, so number one. Uh, it, it makes everyone aware of both sides of the transaction. I would modify that. It says, uh, at least this would be what we would say since it's our podcast here. It would make everyone keep on talking and listen to what other people, <laughs> <laughs> what other people is try to understand what other people are saying. Not just two sides, all sides. Try to listen, listen to different people. Uh, Shall we move on to number two? Yes. Number two, it illuminates the point that consumers don't seem to want to pay for these transactions with money. But, see, my problem is that the users aren't consumers. Okay. In recent years, tech companies have offered Internet users a way of selling their data for money and paying for Internet tools with money. For example... In 2019, Facebook created a study app that paid users for access to their data for market research purposes. But consumer interest and uptake has been low. Maybe that reflects inertia, but I suspect it reflects the fact that digitization has made barter so efficient that Adam Smith's assumption about the evolution of societies is wrong. Um, I think that the consumers didn't mind having corporations subsidize the service. That's sort of... They don't want to pay for the service because companies have been paying for the service for them to use for free for years. It's difficult to make someone start paying for something they've been getting for free. I'm sure there's some some psychological term for that mm-hmm. to where when you give someone a benefit, uh, even though it's a benefit and it's free, they didn't deserve it. 
once they have it and they use it, it becomes part of their experience. It becomes something that's expected of them. Yes. And if you take it away, they see that as a negative, even though they never had it in the first place. Well, I know that you and I... I'm sure there's a term for that. You and I, and I, I manage the account, but we use Microsoft Office. This, I think, is a very good example. We use Microsoft Office. You use Excel a lot. I use PowerPoint on this show, and I use Word. Um, I use Excel a little bit. Uh, but we use Microsoft Office. We pay Microsoft $99 a year for the privilege of using their software. Now, if you talk to someone that's 10 years younger than me, 15 years younger than me, they'll say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You can use Google Docs for free, and it has a similar feature set. It's just as good, and it comes attached to your Gmail account, free cloud storage, more than you would ever need. Why don't you do that? And it's because we grew up. Well, I grew up. You did not grow up. You were using WordStar when you started uh, computing. I grew up with Microsoft Office. I'm used to it, and Microsoft Office always cost money. So it wasn't too hard for me to say, oh, they're going to the subscription service. It's 99 bucks a year, but everyone in the family gets it. Yes, that's what we want to do. We all want Office. Um, now, is Google Docs better? No, I, be- I, I feel like it's probably on par and you don't have to pay for it. But the reason I was willing to pay for Office is because I've been paying for it my whole life. If I'd been getting Microsoft Office for free my whole life and then they wanted to charge me 99 bucks a year, I would say this is an outrage. Very true. You're right. That is a very good example. Um, By the way, you mentioned WordStar. I don't know if our viewers really, listeners really know WordStar, but uh, I use WordStar way when I should have shifted over to Microsoft Word. I just didn't want to do it because I I knew WordStar, and I use it every single day. I use it all the time because I was used to it. But. And, And I'm familiar with it. You can say you shifted over way too late, but do you know who still uses WordStar? Who? George R.R. Martin, author of the Game of Thrones series. He's written all of the Game of Thrones novels, thousand page novels on WordStar. And they ask him, why do you still use WordStar? He's like, I'm used to it. That's what I like. Fascinating, huh? Well, uh, the, the version I used, I think the whole... It was so transportable. It was like 64K or something like that. Uh, it was so simple. And there wasn't that much uh, features. There wasn't that features at all. No. It was just really simple. Boom. So I guess I could say uh, he's my hero. <laughs> he's my word star hero. George R. R. Martin. He hey, refuses R. R. to quit. You stopped using it in like 92. <laughs> he's well, the- I was I was forced to. Yeah. By my... By the university, yeah. But like that was like '92. He's here. He is almost 30 years later. He's still cranking out line after line on WordStar. <laughs> Way to go! Um, anyway, so yes, I I think that I don't know. I don't want to push back too hard against her. I think she's got some good ideas. I just mm-hmm. she's sort of framing problems in a way that her solution will work. And I'm not sure that's how I would exactly frame the problem. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, it is. But then again, as you said, she's framing it to where her argument would work. And so maybe her argument will work uh, in certain circumstances, certain, and maybe not exactly the way she's framing it, but maybe her argument does have some validity in uh, uh, maybe with a different frame. Yes, and and maybe the thing is, she says, you know, anthropology is one of the least studied sciences. Maybe it's not that my framework is better. It's that my framework lacks the knowledge of anthropology to understand exactly how what she's saying would play in, in play out in action. A little, I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. A little bit of both. Yep. And I think it's always good to sort of admit. Maybe I just don't know enough. You know, maybe she knows something I do, and that's why this doesn't make sense to me. Because there's mm-hmm. a lack, I mean, there's a lack of understanding, and there's also a lack of knowledge. Then that's always a potential when you sort of look into anyone's argument. Well, 
very true, David. I think if she was here right now, if she was on our podcast and she's hearing us say these things, I really believe she would have an answer mm -hmm. to all this stuff. And her answer would probably be very articulate and very, very good. Mm -hmm. Very well taken. I go, I understand what you mean. You know, it, that I, I get it. It would be more like she would be educating us on cultural anthropology because that's an area of expertise that she has that we don't. That's right. I would I would love that. That mm -hmm. would be that would be very, very interesting. Now I think one thing that happens in modern media settings, like what we're doing, we're not experts in cultural anthropology. We're taking her argument and from our perspective we're saying, I don't know if I totally agree with that. But um we're not the experts in that subject matter. That's right. So, so I think it's important to admit that because when you watch anyone on the internet, aside from us, talk, <laughs> they're the smartest person that ever lived with more expertise than anyone has ever had in the history of time. So I think it's, well, okay, it's okay for us to push back against ideas with the caveat that we may not understand what's being said totally and we may lack knowledge or understanding that would cause us to click into place. And yet from our perspective, we don't totally agree with it. I know. And I think what you're saying is uh, eyes wide open and also being very, very, very open, but also very uh, logical about, look, we don't understand all this. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't say that today because they want listeners. Yeah. Uh, again, you, I think... Uh, we have the Dunning-Kruger Dunning effect where the people who really don't know what they're talking about think they're the really smartest person in the room. Yeah. Uh, when they're not, they're probably the dumbest person in the room. But they don't know that. And so they think they're smart because they're not smart enough to know that they're not. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but we, but uh, this stuff I don't know. But I find it very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I would love to know her arguments, uh, her her not arguments. Well, yeah, her arguments behind these points, I guess. Yes. Her explanations. There's a, this curve, I think, that they use a lot in nonprofits called awareness to action. So if you're a nonprofit and you're focused on saving the forests, you have to make people aware that the forests are being destroyed. Once they're aware, then you sort of push them towards a specific action. And that action, typically in nonprofits, is give us money. Um, like it is in everything in this world. Like, were you aware that this is the case? Because now that you're aware, give us money. Um, and then they'll take the action on your behalf. You know, money stands as an analog for you taking action on this issue you just became aware of. And that's sort of like barter too. Like, oh, wow, there's injustice in the world. But if I give you money, you'll work on it. So that money, that transaction is like a barter to sort of salve my broken heart for the bad things in the world. I think a lot of charity works that way. Um, well, a lot of everything works. A lot of politics works that way. Yeah. A lot of interpersonal relationships work that way. Oh, I'm sorry I cheated on you. Here's a brand new diamond necklace. Um, and it's I, it's sad, but that's sort of the, the way the world goes around. Um, so anyway... What were we talking about? <laughs> Number three. Number three. It draws attention to the scale and significance of these transactions for the wider economy. At present, these, ten, these flows tend to be excluded from economic measurements, such as gross domestic product data and investors' models of companies' valuations. That is a big mistake. This barter trade needs to be acknowledged to get an accurate picture of how the economy really works and what companies are really worth. I think that is true. I think there's a lot of non-monetary um, jobs going on in the economy that don't get factored into the metrics by which we use to measure the health of the economy. So I think um, the amount of time parents spend with their children, like I'm sure that has a net benefit on the economy, but that's not measured in the data. Uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, and I think that a lot of the hardest jobs in America are some of the lowest paying. Mm -hmm. So they're not adding a lot to the bottom line. Like those people that go in and they do these very difficult jobs, they don't have a lot of spending power. They don't have a lot of political power, 
but they're sort of propping up the, the nation on their shoulders. Well, I would like to understand better uh, how these type of non-monetary flows really, uh, from a barter perspective, uh, is a more accurate pic picture of how the economy works for companies' worth. Uh, understand exactly how the connection of the definition, the anthropological definition of barter, how does that really apply to the company's worth with, say, non-monetary type funds? Yes. Uh, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Again, lack of knowledge of what the definition of barter from her perspective. Well, it's like you said earlier, though. I think that your point earlier was well taken. This information is not just valuable in terms of dollars. It has political value. It has social value. It has cultural value. It has, you know, you can drive all of these things and that can make you money, but that can also, you know, get a certain person elected. That can also cause people to be outraged about a specific issue. And that's value in, its, in and of itself that you can't really measure monetarily. But if you can't measure it monetarily, what metric do you measure it by? That, is that the question that you're sort of asking rephrased? Well, I said that, but then I'm going deeper and saying, I understand that. that that's, I understand what I don't understand. <laughs> but what I don't understand, what the question was, was how does a definition of barter apply to that? Mm -hmm. from, from the anthropological definition of barter. So is there something there... This is how we see it in this. We're talking. We see that. But is there something we don't see from another perspective from anthropology, cultural anthropology? Is there something we don't see that we're missing? That's what I'm saying. That's a good question. And this is a very short article, despite the fact that we've already talked 50 minutes about it. Um, but it's I think those, th good. those are very I mean, good questions. She raises, you know, sometimes brevity uh is is food for thought mm -hmm. if you talk too much people turn tune you out yes and she's just putting some really interesting ideas out there and it just makes your mind just race yes you know so, so we've been talking a a, we've been talking a lot about this article that's very short so we hope you read the article by jillian tett if you're still listening but sometimes brevity is great so let's talk an hour about an article that's one and a half pages long <laughs> Right? Uh-huh. So wanna... even though the article is short, our, our talk about it is not. Yes. Uh, our conclusion so... after talking about a two-page article for an hour is to say, brevity <laughs> is great. <laughs> Shall we continue? We got we to gotta get through this. We got to charge through. Do what we say, not what we do. Okay. Yes. It could help. Number... It oh, could go, help... go for it. Four, it could help policymakers understand today's corporate monopoly power. In recent decades, American regulators tend to, uh, tended to assume that the best way to tell whether a corporation monopoly exists or not is whether consumer prices were high. Khan, the new head of the FTC, uh, is among those who have argued that this approach is outdated since companies are using monopoly powers even when prices are low. Talking about barter might help frame this more effectively. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a very good point. And I think what she's saying from my perspective as a business person is market concentration of, you know, consumers or controlling specific industries. You know, a lot of times people would control the industry and then pump up the prices and say, look what they're doing. They're exploiting the prices. I think these companies realize we're playing a long game. We continue to have Amazon continues to have the same prices as Walmart. It's not like Amazon's twice as much. Yeah, uh, I, that's a bad example. But they know that if they start using their monopoly power, the second they get it, they'll get regulated out of existence. But if they bide their time on their monopoly power until their competitors get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, and then they use it, there's no alternative. So they're playing a longer game, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that she's saying we need to recognize monopoly power where it lives. And talking about barter might help us more effectively identify monopoly power 
so that we can do something about it before a monopoly just slowly outpaces everyone else and then we're completely dependent upon them. Yep. I think it's a very good point. Number five. It would make it easier to build data systems that feel more ethical to consumers. The current system is provoking endless controversy. This isn't necessarily because consumers want to abolish the use of barter. They probably do not, given how efficient it is. What is needed, however, is an effort to change the terms of the barter trade to give consumers more power. How? By forcing companies to provide far more transparency in these trades and letting consumers control the duration of a trade, i.e. how long data is retained. Most important of all, consumers should be free to cut barter deals with different providers to create competition, which means that the regulators should put the onus on tech companies to provide easy data portability, just as financial regulators put the onus on banks to make it easy for consumers to change bank accounts. By acknowledging the word barter and talking about what is hidden in plain sight, the private sector could could and should reshape the current debate itself, embracing a broader vision of how our data economy works. Instead of talking about this in terms of negative, i.e. free or absence of money, we need a positive, active term. Or, if you prefer, ponder another cultural wrinkle that that economists and techies also often ignore, the original linguistic root of the word data, which comes from the Latin word dare, meaning to give. This might seem surprising in our modern business, numbers-obsessed business world, or maybe not. That original root meaning is a small reminder of the exchanges that bind us together, with far more than just money. We ignore at our peril today. This, think of this when you next toss that word data around. Okay, the (laughs) end. Sorry, I sort of stumbled over that last few paragraphs. I'm losing focus. Uh Okay, so I enjoyed the article. Now, I think that... Do you want to hear my criticism? I think sure. she, she knows more about barter than we do, but she didn't put it in this article. She's saying, let's introduce this concept of barter. It'll change the way things go. Um, do you see this problem? Barter would fix that. Do you see this problem? Barter would fix that. Do you see this problem? Barter would improve that. I don't know how. And that's not covered in this article. Well, she does give some suggestions down here, uh, number five, about you know things that could be done. Mm-hmm. But I think to your point, for me, it's not clear how barter leads us to those conclusions. Yes. Yeah. But but uh, she's learned, and I respect that. And uh, from where she sits, and I would love to know more details of her thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, because she obviously knows a lot more about this than just on this short article. Yes. It's like like she's saying, this is what could be done, but she never says how to get there. Uh, so I would love to have have a, um, more detailed information about it. Now, do you think she's the type of person that should be on like an advisory committee for the Federal Trade Commission's regulatory team to sort of say, we need to define structures where we start to look at consumer data as X? And then we start to look at the services provided as Y, and we see that as a trade of X for Y, not X for $10 for Y, you know. Um, so she's the type of person that could sort of sit in on a, on regulatory hearings and sort of, because I, I think that what she's proposing and how it would play out would be more in a regulatory space than at the sea level. I mean, at the sea level, she specifically mentions the sea level in the summary and in the opening paragraph. Um, Mm -hmm. Endless angst in C-suites. Now, I think that the angst isn't about, I think that the, it's working. Think about 20 years ago, how big Facebook was. It didn't exist. Or it was, you know, five months old. Now it's a $700 billion company. So I'm sure that the angst is that they're going to get regulated out of existence, not that what they're doing is not working. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, if you can make $700 billion in 20 years, you're doing something right. That's, that's, mm-hmm. my, I, that's my business. That's Dave's business quote for the day. 
<laughs> if you can make $700 billion in 20 years, you're doing something right. <laughs> well, the C-suites have a whole different perspective on economics, on uh, sales, about revenues, about bottom lines, than regulators. Yes. Regulatory agencies. Now, I think... Totally we, different approaches. If we go back... Um, oh, see, the, the angst is actually by a regulatory backlash. That's what they're worried about. So she's right. She's right. Um, the C-suites don't adopt this bartering. Um, she's saying, borrowing an idea from cultural anthropology and describing the exchange as barter will clarify the minds of regulators and investors. So she's focusing this idea on regulators and investors. And I think basically the only reason investors wouldn't invest in a tech giant is because they'd be afraid that regulation is going to hamstring them, like it did with Ma Bell. Um, so she's saying going forward, regulators should use the idea of barter to sort of frame outcomes and frame, clarify their minds, focus on the scale and nature of long concealed exchanges and how to create a more acceptable framework that protects consumers. So that's her argument. And I, I get it, right? Do you, do you get it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying that where's the power? I mean, the power, talking about the C-suite, yeah, because they're growing and uh, their power is growing. And so it's not just about money. Uh, it's about ability to beyond monetary power, other types of power. And so um, barter is a way to approach it from regulators to monitor this, but it's going to be challenging. Mm -hmm. It's going to be difficult. But I think uh, there again, uh, you need to talk about it. You need to listen, understand, and and just see what these people are, what what Jillian is talking about. Yes. I think, I think there need to be a lot of voices at the table try to understand what everyone is trying to say here, and then don't go down one path, just try to have something that's gonna be working for uh, for the future. Yes, and I do think, you know, she's a PhD like you, so sh she's thinking very top level, like if she was on an advisory committee for a regulatory panel that's talking about regulating big tech, she would introduce these ideas and use them to sort of direct the framework of thinking. And then the grunt workers would say, how does that play out in terms of specific policy suggestions, right? I wouldn't call them grunt workers. <laughs> <laughs> that the, They're practitioners. The, yes. Uh, the practitioners will take the thought, yeah, PhD looks at theory, looks at concepts, philosophies. Uh, but from that philosophy... Uh, you have uh, a number of values from that pers perspective. However, the thinkers have to come down to the planners, have to come down to the doers. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have to understand that this spectrum here, this vertical uh, spectrum, really there's, there's brilliant people at each one of those yes, levels. That's true. And, and you have to, and respect all of them. And so, yeah, I started the PhD level, but then I, I started moving down. I began uh, realizing the value of each one of them. And I think that uh, that's why that's why I love our podcast, that uh, we listen, understand, uh, and also respect what everyone says, because uh, there's a lot of smart people out there, and they're smart in different ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, a, a PhD is trained and challenged uh, to be intelligent and smart in, in, one, in one way mm -hmm. uh, from philosophy. Uh, however, there are other very intelligent people, uh, brilliant, gifted people, uh, that are not necessarily with that perspective, with other perspectives. Yes. And all of that is our world. It's like you could, and, uh, you could be the most learned person on basketball. You're not going to beat LeBron James in a game of one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> right that's true that's true 
And but, I, uh, I think what you're saying, it reminds me of this is I always rolled my eyes with, you know, the Plato, the philosopher. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He described a system of uh, gold souls, silver souls and bronze souls. And guess who the gold souls were? The, well, from Plato, it would be the, the uh, well, that's it, 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 very interesting question. I don't know what he said. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Where do you think? From Plato, Plato's pers perspective, he would say philosophers. Philosophers were the gold soul. How did you know that? <laughs> but if, from his philosophy, he probably should say the gold souls are the are the workers? No, they're at the bottom. The people <laughs> he's at that the top. Make things happen. He's See, above. He's above the kings. You know, they're they're below him. Like the people that think about it. It reminds me of. I, I don't want to. Yeah, I read this article about this guy <laughs> in uh, Layfums. They did a music uh, issue, and he was. Um, I think he was an Italian nobleman, and. He, he loved music, but he couldn't play and he couldn't compose. So he wrote this treatise on music. And he said there's three tiers of musicians. There's the players. If you're fantastic at the violin, if you're fantastic at the piano, you're like a craftsman. And then <laughs> if you compose symphonies that are beautiful, that last through centuries, you're like... Uh, a merchant. And then if you're like him, if you listen and you understand and you write about it, even though you can't play a lick and you can't write a tune, you're at the top of that pyramid because you understand more than they do. And it's like, I don't buy that. I don't buy that for a minute. I think you just suck. I think you just... Um, <laughs> not, to, not to dump on philosophers, but that just sort of got me on that tangent. <laughs> yeah, well, my... I think, you know, you got to walk a mile in, in, in a person's moccasins to know what they experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that each of those levels, I think you really need to just be there, yeah. be there. There's a lot of smart people everywhere. I, I respect everyone. I think when you have someone at the top, they're taking advice from someone at the bottom. I think that's a very intelligent person. Mm -hmm. A, a very wise person, I put it that way, because people can be intelligent from learning things, and uh, a lot of people are educated, okay, and and a lot of people are educated beyond their intelligence. That all they can do is recite. Yeah, they really don't understand what they're. But the point is, there's smart people everywhere. I think we're getting off the off the topic a little bit here. That's true. We we verged off on a tangent. I think it's just because what you described as like a top down like like philosophical and then tactical and then sort of functional reminded me of Plato. So then I started, I, I went down that rabbit hole. That was my fault. It's okay. It, it's very clear. And I think this article, uh, Jillian Ted, I think she brings up some very good points, mm -hmm. very good points on how a different perspective on barter. Uh, I, I would not discount it at all, uh, but I would like to see it, broadened and maybe folded into other types of perspectives to see uh, how it plays out. I mean, I think there need to be, well, one thing that I would say that, that I that I would say and be quoted on is that the tech industry, people really don't understand, uh, don't understand it very well. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we really don't know where it's going. We, we're beginning to visualize and realize the power of the growth of the tech industry and data, uh, but how to manage it, uh, how it's gonna change things, uh, if it's gonna make life better or worse, how it's gonna bring people together or divide them, we don't know. And so when you don't know that, you really need to step back and listen to people and have people from all different areas and levels chime in and and let's just listen listen understand understand and come together mm -hmm. uh you're not going to be successful by dividing people you're only going to be successful by bringing people together 
And that, I'll stand behind that forever. Nice. Well, we got the music playing. Should we wrap up the episode? Let's do that. All right. Sons of Sequoia, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, our tagline here, Sons of Sequoia, which we're talking about every episode. Keep on talking. And listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. We'll catch you next time, everyone. Bye.